Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to your favorite biblical history podcast, Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am a journalist here always with my amazing co-host, Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. And Helen, I'm very happy when we get to do this because we do get emails and messages from our listeners. And in this case, we got a topic suggestion from a member of the Time Travelers Club, and we love hearing from our loyal Time Travelers <laughs> Club do, members. So, got a message from Pauline Goodlad, and she was interested in what we call queer readings of the Bible. And in particular, there's this intriguing story in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that we call the healing of the centurion's slave. This comes up as maybe the best example of, of Jesus possibly interacting with people in a same-sex relationship. This is something that I hadn't thought about, so I was very glad that Pauline sent us a suggestion. And then I was even happier that we found Chris. So we found Christopher Zeichman, who wrote a book about this. Um, it was called Queer Readings of the Centurion at Capernaum, Their History and Politics. And even better, Alan, is <laughs> from our our friends at SBL Press who do Bible Odyssey. So anyway, he's the perfect guest. <laughs> he's the perfect guest. He walks us through this. It's not clear cut, is it, Ellen? I mean, it's not like we can say, "Oh yeah, for sure, that's what's going on." This is definitely you know two men in a same sex relationship. Oh, definitely Jesus yeah. is giving it his blessing. It's it's not that easy, is it? Yeah, it's very ambiguous and possibly there, possibly not there, which Chris himself, I think, is it does a really good job of being balanced and, yeah. and giving the different um, sides of things. But but it's intriguing. And I have to say, it's making me think. I mean, I, I'd never considered that possibility before. But the more I think about it, particularly uh, the idea of an imbalanced um, mm. relationship, um, I'm sort of thinking it makes sense. Now, before we get to our conversation with Chris, we should probably give our listeners a warning, Helen. Don't you think this is like a little bit of a different topic than we usually cover on the podcast? So, you know, if you got your kids in the car, we get, you know, it gets not like crazy explicit, but we're talking about sex in the ancient world. So if, if this is something that either you don't really want to talk about or you don't want the other people who are listening to hear about you know, maybe skip this episode, but we think it's really interesting. So we hope you stick around. Oh, and we need to announce the second winner of the free copy of the SBL Study Bible. feel like we need a drum roll mm -hmm. here, Dave. It's Deborah Edgar. Well done, Deborah. A copy will be on its way out to you very soon. Nice. All right. Well, let's get to our conversation with Chris Zeichman about same-sex relationships in the ancient world and what was going on here in the story of the centurion and his slave. Well, hello, Christopher Zeichman, and welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Uh, thank you both for having me. I'm excited to be here today. All right, so I think we have to provide our listeners with sort of a little background, a little point of entry. So, Chris, if you don't mind, kind of walk us through this story of the healing of the centurion's slave. And we're going to talk about whether or not we should call it slave. Um, and it appears in a couple of Gospels, right? Matthew and Luke. How, how does it go? Yeah, so as you know, it appears uh, 
most fully in Matthew and Luke. There's kind of a loose parallel in the Gospel of John chapter 4. Some people debate whether it's not the same thing, but okay. we'll be focusing on the, the Matthew and Luke version here. Um, so the story is pretty simple, that uh, Jesus goes to this village, Capernaum, um, and there he encounters, either directly or indirectly, depending on the Gospel, of the sort of uh, centurion, the sort of military officer, and uh, this officer has uh, so in his household, uh, pice is the word used, we'll talk more about that, I suspect, um, a, a boy, a slave, something like that, who's sick, and uh, you know, requests that Jesus heal him. Um, Jesus uh, is impressed by the faith of this man and uh, miraculously heals him, but also at a distance, right? So Jesus doesn't actually go up and touch him. This hmm. healing at a distance is something that I think people have talked a bit about throughout history. And Jesus really commends the centurion for the excellence of his faith there. Um, so that's kind of the core of the story there uh, that we find in uh, Matthew and Luke. The striking thing about it, why nothing obviously sexual or gender related in there, but I suspect we'll get into that uh, shortly anyway. Well, that's what I was just thinking. I mean, I, I have to say this is completely new to me, the idea that Jesus is here um, encountering somebody who's in a, a same-sex relationship. So so how far back does this interpretation go? Yeah, so this is uh, relatively recent uh, in terms of uh, what sort of when people started talking about this passage this way. Um, since about 1950 is when we kind of find the earliest articulations mm -hmm. of it. So at this point, uh, not even 75 years ago. Uh, what that would be. And and even then, it was sort of this, um, it wasn't even like a scholarly argument in 1950. It was actually a, a poem mm. that someone wrote uh, that's this sort of uh, retelling of the story from the perspective of the centurion. It was this uh, Greek poet. Uh, his name was Dinos Christianopoulos. Um, he wrote this poem called The Centurion Cornelius. You know, you can Google it, find it very easily. It's public domain. Um, and it's, it's a very tender retelling of it. Um, Basically, sort of, he, this is young man that he was in love with. This young man fell under hard circumstances, so he kind of had to enslave him. Now he's not doing very well, and he kind of pleads Jesus to, mm -hmm. to save this young man. So that's 1950s when we first start finding it. It isn't really until maybe a decade or two later, the 1960s, that we start to find kind of semi-exegetical arguments, right? That, uh, and even then, it's not really scholarly stuff initially. Um, it tended to be kind of um, LGBT newsletters, um, you know, kind of things like that were kind of not exactly scholarly material there, but kind of something that kind of uh, queer people were talking to each other and uh, sharing kind of tales that, hey, here's Alexander the Great might have been gay, you know, uh, Hadrian might have had, you know, this or that. And so kind of including Jesus as part of that story is when we start to find that and um even then, it wasn't until like the 1970s or so that really any biblical scholars took notice of it. So it's something that definitely didn't originate within the academy itself. Um, kind of outside of that is where it began. And, and it's only more recently that scholars have taken note of it. Oh, cool. Well, yeah, let's let's get into, you know, some of this scholarly evidence that, that there might be something to the theory that, that the uh, centurion was in a relationship with his slave anyway but let's talk about that word slave or boy or what what is the greek word that we're using and and why is it kind of intriguing when we're talking about perhaps a, a same-sex relationship existing here yeah so the, the argument i think kind of comes down to exactly this this key word that's used there the word uh pice in greek um so uh 
the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, kind of use two different words for slave or whatever the case, however you want to translate it here. So doulos would be the most common word. Um, so, for instance, in the same story, uh, the centurion says, you know, I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Um, that's kind of referring to slaves more broadly. But when he refers to this particular slave, pretty consistently, um, the word pais is used. And this is a word that's actually much more ambiguous what it might mean, right? Um, in a literal sense, it means child, boy, something like that, young man. Um, and it could and often did mean slave, um, kind of similar to how... Um, what the word boy is sometimes used in uh, North, Amer North American slavery to refer to slaves at times mm. as well uh, before the Civil mm. War, right? Kind of a very patronizing term there. But it did have mm. other meanings, right? It, it could mean something like uh, uh, what? Yeah, some sort of these same-sex relationships of whatever sort, kind of the, the junior partner is what that would mean, right? So um, mm. kind of uh, there'd be an older partner, a younger partner there. And this word pies could mean something like that. There's plenty of instances of that uh, throughout Greco-Roman antiquity. And so this would be one of those things that point to that. There's a specific word that's chosen there. Matthew actually never refers to this um, healed person as a slave at all, um, always referring to him as a pious. Um, Luke is mm. clearly referring to a slave here. So that would be uh, one, one big argument in favor of it. It's kind of this word that, you know, kind of has these sort of homoerotic subtexts there. Um, other people point to other uh, aspects, too. Uh, so one thing would be that in the Gospel of Luke, the uh, uh, slave is referred to as being very dear to the centurion in kind of more recent translations, uh, the word entimos. And there's also the issue that we have kind of widespread evidence of homoeroticism um, in, you know, the militaries of antiquity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think... Well, if you think about ancient Greek context, kind of part of those initiations into civic identity, citizenship did involve kind of same-sex relationships of one or another sort. And um, certainly within the Roman military, we've got widespread evidence of uh, soldiers and officers um, sleeping with younger men. Um, mm -hmm. And so these, no one of these things is the sort of smoking gun that would say this must have happened. But kind of what, what people have noticed that kind of cumulatively, they may suggest that this is a possible subtext here, right? Um, you know, again, there's no mention of romance, sex, uh, gender, anything like that in the story in any direct way. Uh, but the fact is, you know, these are kind of things that people say cumulatively, they may suggest something like that. Some people are convinced, other people are not. Um, you know, I, I think the issue is pretty complicated myself, but uh, these would be kind of some of those reasons people would say that. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's worth floating and just sort of seeing how how likely it seems, isn't it? And when you say that um, the word pace is used in in Greco-Roman literature, um, you know, to mean a, a sort of younger partner in a same-sex male relationship, how how commonly is that? I mean, when when people heard the word pace, are they more likely to have thought of that meaning, or are they more likely to have thought of, um, you know? A, a boy or a slave or something, or does it just really depend on the context? Yeah, so I think you're right that context is going to be key for a lot of these things, right? So um, kind of this younger lover would not be the primary usage of the word. Um, uh -huh. You know, it would, I mean, in Luke, you know, because it's already referred to as a slave, it'd be pretty reasonable to interpret pious as just sort of a synonym varying the vocabulary a little bit there. Yeah. Um, but Matthew, for instance, never refers to this young man as a slave at all. And looking at other kind of Greco-Roman texts, we do find a lot of um, many references to 
younger lovers being referred to this way. So, um, you know, if you go to a museum and they have, uh, for instance, uh, kind of the sort of Greek pottery, the attic uh, vases and stuff like that, one of those kind of common things you'll see is this phrase uh, in Greek would be ha pais kalos. So the, the young man is beautiful and kind of often depicting a homoerotic scene. This is pretty common that you'll find that. Um, many, many ancient historians use the word in that way. So Thucydides um, can kind of casually refer to the ex-lover of a king, a Pausanias, with this word. Um, and when we look at kind of Latin context as well, we kind of find that the word puer, the, the kind of the Latin synonym there, often has this homoerotic subtext as well, which we see, you know, in kind of contemporaneous literature, right? So Petronius' Satirica, um, among others. So this is not uncommon, but again, it's not exactly smoking gun here. So it kind of needs to be correlated with, as you know, to Helen, context um, and kind of broader kind of concerns within the, the literary issue there. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and and kind of culturally, because we like to kind of zoom out from just, you know, Judea and stuff. If we look at the larger Greco-Roman world of which they were a part, you know, kind of how how common and accepted was this type of relationship, this kind of older and younger man, uh, you know, same-sex relationship? Yeah, uh, so that's a great question, right? So it's one thing to say this is possible. Well, how common actually was it, right? Um, uh, one thing I kind of wanted to start with is differentiating kind of pretty clearly between how we talk about homosexuality today and antiquity. I think that's just something worth clearing up front. Um, so today when we talk about homosexuality, we tend to have in mind something like sexual orientation seems to be the concept we think about, right? Where we actually really foreground notions of identity today that, um, you know, I think of one of my friends uh, who um, identifies as lesbian, but for 40 years, she was in a marriage with a man. Um, she, not none of my business, I'm assuming she never slept with um, a man during that time. And yet she knew she was lesbian. So who you actually sleep with is less relevant than your identity for us today, right? Um, you know, people can identify mm. as bisexual or whatever the case may be without actually knowing anything about their sexual past. This is quite a contrast from antiquity where what actually mattered was not your identity, how you thought about your own sexual preferences, but who you actually slept with. And that uh, this is very much caught up with questions of power. Um, so within mm. this context, there's what's kind of sometimes referred to as the pre-epic protocol, this idea that... Um, kind of there's a penetrating partner and a penetrated partner um, and that the penetrating partner within the any active intercourse is supposed to be of higher status, supposed to be older um, and usually a citizen of one or another sort. Um, and you can imagine the flip side of that for uh, the penetrated partner, right? So the penetrated partner might be, you know, whether a, a woman, a slave, a younger partner, a non-citizen, a foreigner, something like that. So this is kind of the, the ideal. Obviously, you know, people go against norms on occasion, but this is kind of how people talked about it, what was socially acceptable at these different times. And, uh, you know, the Gospels are written during the Roman period. At this point, we find um, pretty widespread evidence of uh, sexual intercourse between adult men and kind of either younger men or uh, enslaved men, right? So men who've been, you know, whether it's uh, part of a brothel or a slave they own themselves, uh, something like that. And what this seems to be relatively common, we've got plenty of references to this in antiquity. What matters is that you actually 
weren't having sex with another Roman citizen in this way. This is kind of where things would be getting tricky. Mm. Um, so there's uh, one instance that uh, Valerius Maximus kind of references where he uh, talks about how this a centurion uh, slept with another young man and was executed for it. And the issue wasn't that he slept with a young man. The issue is that he slept with a Roman citizen, right? That he was mm. a penetrating partner and that violating another Roman citizen's body through the act of penetration that way, that was the problem. Mm. So as long as it was done within kind of these social norms um, of the penetrating partner being older, higher status, um, you know, a citizen, and the younger partner was none of these things, you know, it seems to have been pretty acceptable and relatively common in terms of when it happened. Um, you know, we don't exactly have people's personal diaries talking about who they slept with this <laughs> night or that night, but based on kind of literary evidence, graffiti, stuff like that, we get a pretty good sense that, you know, these things sort of happen on pretty regular occasions. So it's significant then that, that this is a centurion. It's a sort of that he holds the power and, 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 mm. and a slave then that's got that power dynamic you were talking about. And, and how, how, common do you think this was in the army then was it was it i mean do we know do we have we got any idea sure yeah so right so part of this one of these big arguments in favor of uh this particular kind of queer reading of the passage is exactly that that this is a roman officer or a military man and that there's evidence of homoeroticism in the roman military and this applies broadly um without regard to rank you know you read uh kind of the writings of uh what uh, Tacitus and stuff like that talking about kind of the Roman military. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear that, you know, Roman soldiers slept with men quite regularly, you know, just read any sort of passage and that'll come through in any military context there. Um, but specifically the centurion though, um, you know, that actually is particularly relevant because we have a number of ancient texts that actually specify that it was a centurion who slept with another young man. Right. So I, I just kind of mentioned there the instance from Valerius Maximus talking about, one instance where that was the case. Um, we also kind of have other ones where, um, you know, if you're familiar with uh, Marshall, right, the guy who writes all the epigrams and kind of a very comedic, he mentions a few times uh, centurions who have sex with their male slaves. Um, Plautus, the Roman comedic playwright, uh, kind of makes a number of dirty jokes in his comedies about what soldiers like to do with their swords. Um and, <laughs> so it's kind of like uh, a trope is, then. It's like one of those things, mother-in-law jokes or that kind of thing, what what the centurion gets up to with his slaves. Exactly. So I think there's there's definitely mm-hmm. evidence that it's thought that the centurion in particular was someone who's right. likely to be someone of high status um, and who is kind of having this sort of sexual outlet, right? Because, again, the Roman military, you're not allowed to bring uh, wives in there, you know. You're not, so it's a very much a homosocial context. Uh, that is a lot of men with other men. Um, and, uh, well, you know, people have sex anyway, you're not allowed to have sex with another citizen. So slaves kind of presented a, a viable way of doing that. Right. And I, I think you're right. That's in some ways a, a trope that seems to appear here and there. Absolutely. Well, that, and I, I forgot something you wrote in your book and, and you just mentioned there, like, was it that they couldn't get married or they just couldn't, their wives couldn't sort of travel with them when they were, if they were on post in some place like Judea? Yeah. So it gets uh, kind of complicated there. Uh, so uh, the Roman military had this strong aspect of discipline. Um, and part of this uh, was very much the idea that to be disciplined, you couldn't experience a lot of pleasure in life. So Roman military food was like, you know, not exactly fine dining, a lot of hard labor all the time. So 
not much different from what you imagined, kind of the chain gangs of kind of, you know, prison hmm. labor of, of the old days. And part of this also means you don't get that pleasure of, you know, bringing a wife or a partner with you. Certainly we have evidence of brothels propping up almost always whenever there's a military site. Um, and sometimes those are evidence of all male built uh, military brothels. I think there's, I can't remember, it's somewhere in uh, Britain, it might have been uh, Vindolanda, somewhere else there's evidence of an all male uh, brothel next to a military base there. Hmm. Okay. And uh, so certainly in Judea, that would, you know, these are soldiers who would have probably been either unmarried or at least away from their family. Um, and uh, so again, finding sexual outlets, you know, you're going to be away for several years. Some of those may be socially acceptable. Some of those may not be socially acceptable. I think sex with a slave, it presents one kind of, at least as far as they're concerned at the time, a socially acceptable sexual outlet there. Well, you made, you made an important point earlier that this, when we're talking about these relationships, we're not talking about them in the same context that we talk about same-sex relationships today, which are based in, you know, equal partners and love. And, you know, we think of them as those kind of normative relationships. This was, there were power dynamics at play in at least probably the one that we're talking about. If we're talking about a centurion and his slave, I, I read in your book that some people have argued that this is kind of a negative relationship that maybe we're talking more about, you know, in, in, from the slave's point of view, someone who has no consent to this and, and maybe we should be thinking about it more as almost like sexual slavery. So is that another reading of this that you feel like has some merit? Yeah. So I think this is kind of, I mean, kind of the core issue at the center of the book that I try to write. Um, so, uh, and so this is one that I'm kind of deeply concerned with because as someone who supports, to me, it's obvious that, you know, queer people should have full inclusion in society, all sorts of things. I, I take these for granted. Um, so this is not to suggest that, you know, oh, gay marriage should not be allowed or anything like that as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I think you're right that does this actually present a good example for what a same-sex relationship should look like? Is this actually a good model for, for instance, queer discipleship for Christians mm. or anything like this? Is this something worth celebrating? And I'm not quite sure that it actually does present a good model for exactly the reasons you know it there, right? That when you're talking about a master-slave relationship, you know, does the consent of the slave actually matter to the to the master at all, right? And I'm not sure that it does. Um, you know, we've got plenty of evidence from Roman antiquity where slaves, excuse me, where masters clearly know that uh, that slaves don't always consent to these things, right? So there's um, what uh, uh, this this graffito from Pompeii uh, that was discovered uh, that basically says, "Take hold of your slave girl whenever you please; it's your right to do so." Uh, which is say doesn't matter what she wants; what matters is what you want. And so this is definitely a form of sexual violence. Um, at the very least, it does not represent the type of thing that we would consider a sort of loving relationship between peers or people are basically peers anyway, right? Um, and that's, so it's something that I find myself hesitating a lot about. Uh, on the one hand, it's the political causes that I'm obviously in support of personally. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's these kind of other issues of, is this actually a good example um, mm -hmm. for trying to make this case there? And it's something that I find myself reflecting up with. Um, you know, we certainly do find examples in antiquity of slaves who, um, opt for suicide, uh, rather than, mm. um, being a sexual partner there, right? There's a, an instance mentioned, I think in, in the Talmud, if I remember correctly, the, the, the Babylonian Talmud about, um, kind of these 
Jewish children who are all kidnapped and with their women as well. And they opt for death as opposed to being sold into a brothel, which they took as inevitable. And um, it's, you know, what what is the, the slave's role in all this? Is this actually a consensual relationship? Um you know, we obviously can't get in mind. Of we don't even uh, we don't even meet him, right? We don't even get to to hear from him <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah, it is odd because like here's this sort of very important figure who never appears, you know, on screen if we're talking about television or something like that, right? <laughs> sort of in the background, kind of referred to passively, and uh, you know, we all we know about what this centurion, excuse me, what this slave, the Pice, has to say, comes through the words of the centurion there that. Um, we have, we take for granted that the centurion, you know, is representing accurately that this is a loving relationship and so on. And so some scholars, in, interpreters have suggested that Jesus is in fact restoring an abusive relationship here, mm. right? Um, mm. That he is, you know, we think of, there's plenty of evidence throughout history whenever there's slavery of people who malinger, right? That kind of feigning illness is one way that slaves can kind of resist uh, their master's desires. And in this case, well, if this is, this is one way you could read the story, right? I'm not suggesting this is exactly what Matthew or Luke intend, but you could read it as this slave malingering and, you know, kind of feigning illness to seek respite from this sort of, uh, what, the desires, the duties that he has, whether they be sexual strictly or whatever other roles they may have. And Mm -hmm. Jesus in restoring the slave to health you know, some people have suggested that he's in fact restoring an abusive relationship there. Wow. So it can get into very heavy issues with this in a way that's, you know, I think important questions. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what, what about the place more broadly of, of homosexuality within first century Judaism? Because, I mean, obviously in the Hebrew Bible, there's um, condemnation of, of both male and female same-sex relations. But as we've seen many, many times on the podcast, um <laughs> it's one thing to have it there in uh, the theological texts, and it's a completely different thing when it comes to the lived reality of people. And and sometimes, of course, those texts are they say what they are saying deliberately to stop people doing what it is they're doing. So, so do we know much at all about what what the, the place of of same sex relationships in in Roman Judea? Yeah, so this is a great question because it ties on the issue of, okay, it may be plausible that the centurion and the slave are sleeping together because those are Roman norms, but yeah. what are the odds of Jesus actually, you know, as yeah. a first century Jew who's kind of in these sort of norms of the time and kind of, uh, you know, obviously somebody who's talking a lot of theological Judaism as well, what are the odds of him actually you know, having this opinion versus that opinion there? Mm-hmm. Um, and when we look at, you know, roughly contemporaneous Jewish texts, uh, to be clear, they overwhelmingly are very negative about same-sex intercourse, right? So Josephus, uh, Philo of Alexandria, uh, the Sibylline Oracles, take your pick, but they tend to be very negative there. Um, but yet I would suggest that that's not the whole story, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Just because people are condemning things certainly doesn't mean it's universal. And there is actually a good amount of evidence to suggest that Jewish people in, you know, roughly that turn of the era period when Jesus is living, um, nevertheless had same-sex intercourse anyway in a way that was at least acceptable among certain people, right? So, um, for instance, the Flavius Josephus mentions a couple examples. Um, Herod the Great and his son Aristobulus, um, you know, each with their own slaves uh, seem to have had uh, sex with their slaves, uh, you know. Um, another example would be um, the poet Marshall, again, kind of mentioning uh, multiple times uh, 
whether it's Jewish slaves sleeping with their masters or Jewish masters sleeping with their slaves. Um, a particularly uh, interesting example is actually a non-literary example uh, from Beth Gavrin, which would be in uh, kind of the Judea region, uh, where it's graffiti um, written by two Jewish men basically saying, so-and-so slept with so-and-so, I'll keep it uh, PG-rated here in terms of the language used. Um, but it's pretty explicit. It's one Jewish man sleeping with another Jewish man and whatever reason they scribe it inside a cave and it's uh you know these things are definitely happening there right yeah, yeah. um and there's of course other bits of evidence too um you know uh, some of this is hard to know how reliable it is because a lot of it's what we call kind of polemical material um where um whether it's i think of for instance josephus talks about his um kind of political rival john of Giscala, oh yeah um, and says yeah, so he's like saying, oh, this is a guy like him and all of his kind of uh, military subordinates. John Giscala is kind of one of the leaders in uh, the Jewish revolts against Rome. Saying, oh, they all sleep with with men and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Clearly intended to discredit them is why Josephus is saying it. Possible it's accurate. Possible it's just sort of polemic. Um, but what's striking in most of these stories when it is told is that even though we think of you know Leviticus among other things as kind of these condemnations of uh, same-sex intercourse between men, none of these texts actually present it as a shock that you know a Jewish man would sleep with another man. Um, in fact, seems to be just sort of like, well, we don't approve of this or we don't like that, but it's not like, can you believe a Jewish man mm. would do these sorts of things? That's never actually how it's framed in any of these texts there, which would suggest, again, it's the sort of thing that's not exactly socially acceptable, but happens anyway, right? Mm -hmm. In any sort of country where they criminalize this or that activity, often it happens anyway. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, what people do in the bedrooms, it's particularly hard to regulate that, um, <laughs> you know, as well. People are doing it behind closed doors there. All right. Well, if we, if we go back into the text for a second, if we go back into the New Testament, we have this intriguing encounter with Jesus and the centurion and his slave, has has part of the kind of queer reading of this been, you know, if if Jesus heals this slave, even if he does it from a distance, has that been interpreted as his sort of tacit, you know, blessing of this union of this of this relationship? Is that one of the of one of the interpretations? Yeah, I think that's really what it comes down to, um, right? So that kind of, as I noted earlier, the kind of this interpretation really began within queer LGBT context, trying to find some sort of biblical authority to say that, yes, Leviticus may say this, you know, yes, Paul may say this, but Jesus actually supports it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, when you read these kind of, go through the history of interpretation of kind of queer readings of the special, that's clearly what it is. And it, what's interesting is it perhaps unsurprisingly corresponds to kind of the laws at this or that time, right? So, um, you know, uh, Dave, you and I are both Americans. Um, you know, we think of the 1990s, there's the don't ask, don't tell policy in the military, right? So mm -hmm. for those who aren't familiar, um, that was sort of a time period when the, you know, could you be gay in the military? Well, the official policy of the U.S. government was, well, don't ask if someone's gay. Don't tell if you are gay. And that way it won't be a problem, right? <laughs> it's not allowed to be gay, but just don't ask, don't tell is what it is. And so we do find interpreters saying, well, here's a military guy who Jesus seems to be having a who's gay, uh, according to this interpretation. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with it. So, you know, one interpreter says, 
you know, Jesus doesn't ask and the centurion doesn't tell, right? <laughs> um, more recently, right, uh, the 21st century, uh, you know, kind of gay marriage has been on a lot of people's minds, you know, with the U.S. legalizing it not too long ago and kind of other countries uh, changing as well with that. And it's kind of been interpreted as kind of a, a forerunner or sort of a prototype of gay marriage um, by certain people as well. Um, so the book kind of traces in some ways kind of the, the legal history and how that corresponds to interpretation of the passage. But absolutely right that this is something that is usually taken as an endorsement um, mm. as a sort of a political matter. So, you know, whether it's uh, lay interpreters or queer theologians, um, that this is a passage that's sometimes looked to as a part of that um, kind of here's evidence within the biblical canon of uh, Jesus supporting something like gay marriage or queer identity or queer people, something like that. Sure. I'm trying to think, is is there any other passage in the Gospels where Jesus um, uh, sort of addresses homosexuality in any way, you know, either positively or negatively? I can't really think of any other. I mean, that, and that's one of the problems, isn't it? That that Paul says things, but 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 normally people think that Jesus isn't saying anything, unless unless there's a passage I've missed. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. It's never really mentioned directly at all. I mean, the closest I think we would come to would be Matthew nineteen twelve, talking about eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven and oh, stuff like that. Yeah. Eunuchs, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, kind of vaguely, um, but really, it's there's not really anything there to grab onto, and I think that's kind of why people are prone to gravitating towards this passage as well, right? That, you know, Jesus never condemns it. That much is clear. Um, but, uh, you know, if we read between the lines, a lot of people think that, hey, here's here's the possibility that Jesus may be supporting gay marriage because, again, nothing clearly condemning it, nothing directly supporting it in an obvious way. Um, and so it's kind of this sort of excavation of the text to find something underneath there. Um, you know, it, I think... Yeah, it gets a little bit, I'm trying to think against it. I don't know if there's anything directly against it, but I do think the Gospel of Luke, for instance, I find has very much, its sexual politics tend towards the idea that basically people should abstain from sexuality. Um, Luke seems to be overwhelmingly supportive of celibacy. And you can kind of, you know, when you compare how, you know, Luke changes Mark here or where Luke differs from Matthew there in the double tradition, usually it's clear that, Luke is doing things like uh, really encouraging celibacy, um, but um, and you might argue that would also mean that no same-sex intercourse as well. But again, it's never mentioned directly and doesn't seem to be treated as any different from uh, the idea that, uh, you know, just don't have sex at all is kind of what Luke's <laughs> approaches. But yeah, not, not much there, I think, to work. Yeah. That's a shame, isn't it? Because that would give us context, but... Uh... Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of reading between the lines with these yeah. things and, you know, a lot of extrapolating with, you know, okay, you know, oh, Matthew seems to be okay with, you know, for instance, Matthew's genealogy, right? Where there's a lot of women mm -hmm. who have sex that is thought of as, you know, illicit or unusual. And that's kind of what their reputation was in, you know, th this time period. Is that enough to suggest that, you know, this kind of illicit sex as well would be enough? Well, again, it's, it's reading between the lines, a lot of interpretation, nothing particularly direct on the matter. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's like the whole field of biblical studies, isn't it? Right? We have to. There's a lot of <laughs> there's an entire books that are reading between the lines. So I think, in that sense, there there there's a validity to you know at least theorizing about this. But what what is what has been up to this point sort of the consensus within the kind of PhD holding biblical studies community? Like, is 
has there been pushback against a queer reading of of this story of the centurion and his slave? Is there kind of strong evidence to say, eh, yeah, maybe not? Um, yeah, yeah. So there's been a number of objections to this sort of interpretation. Um, I think again, the fact that it's not clear would be an obvious one there. Um, and you might also say that again, Luke has kind of got a view that's prone more towards celibacy or sexual renunciation. Um, and you could argue that Matthew too tends to think pretty negatively about some of these things, right? So Matthew's very fixated on uh, the Greek word moikeia, this adultery being a big fixation throughout Matthew. And kind of with this is related to like Matthew saying negative things about lustfulness, right? So, um, and, uh, you know, Matthew 5.28 talking about looking at a woman with lustful intent. Presumably that would imply to looking at a man with lustful intent too. It's not explicit. Um, or Matthew 15.19, which talks about... Uh, kind of sexual immorality in that way. So that might, you could say that these might be some reasons. And moreover, you might point to uh, Matthew being a gospel that's very interested in a particular relevance of Torah, uh, kind of following uh, the, the written Torah in a particular way, might weigh against mm-hmm. this sort of uh, interpretation that if Matthew seems to think that, hey, here's these other commandments of Moses that need to be taken seriously. Well, so also the ones relating to uh, prohibition on same-sex intercourse, um, so again, I think there's definitely arguments to be made both ways. Um, and I mean, I myself am kind of up in the air on this. Like, honestly, if you were to ask me, I, I don't think, I think it's hard to sustain this reading for the gospel of Luke. Um, I think if you were to talk about Matthew and for me, I, I'm a believer in the sayings gospel Q. I, I, uh, I know not everybody is. I think even their opinions might be something along the lines of, oh, I didn't really think about it, but I suppose it's possible, or to possibly like, yeah, I kind of implied that, right? I don't think it's something they're trying to draw attention to in, in Matthew at all. Um, but the overwhelming, what do scholars think is kind of that other issue, right? Uh, this is a view that tends to be really at the margins. Um, so it really hasn't gotten too far outside of what I would characterize as sort of shadow scholarship. So kind of LGBT interpreters who are trying to kind of cultivate their own canon, their own kind of set of who are those you know great uh, queer people in history. Um, I think there's a certain amount of that. There have been a number of important articles on the topic within scholarly journals, to be clear. I don't want to downplay those. Um, Benny Liu and uh, Theodore Jennings Jr., about 20 years ago now, uh, published a very important article in uh, Journal of Biblical Literature. And there's been a number of other scholars who have led their uh, kind of lent their own endorsement as well. Um, so certainly there's a number of scholars, but my own sense, just kind of doing the research for this, is that scholars tend to um, either be unaware of it or tend to think of this sort of, okay, that's a, a theological thing of people who want to find something queer going on in the text. And therefore, it's not serious history. You know, it's conceivable, but not really serious history in a way that, um, you know, if we were to do, you know, get down to the text and get do a close reading type thing. So I think it's still definitely a minority opinion. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons for this, right? The text is ambiguous. Um, you know, there's certainly reasons within Luke and within Matthew to be suspicious that it might not actually be the case. Um, I think the biblical academy still is very uh, heteronormative, right? I think there's a lot of assumptions about kind of the normative status of heterosexuality in antiquity. Um, a lot of people assuming things like Leviticus was still the law of the land in a way that, 
you know, well, clearly people mm. actually did, men did sleep with other men and women did sleep with other women. We've got evidence of that, plenty of it, even within Judaism. Um, and, uh, you know, will this change? I don't know if there'll be a consensus eventually one way or the other on it, but I think it's something that deserves a bit more attention than it's gotten at the very least. Um, it's my own sense of things. And I think, I think maybe, you know, maybe we should, every time we, you know, we should train ourselves so that every time we see references to slaves in, in the New Testament, that, you know, that possibility of sexual exploitation, um, at least, if not, you know, I mean, and in this case, it, it, it might well be a same sex relationship. But, you know, when we have slave girls as well, you know, it's, it's just one of those realities of ancient life that that we don't really want to acknowledge, particularly not in these sacred texts. But um, I imagine most of the original hearers of these texts would have would have known that that was part and parcel of what it meant to be an enslaved. Absolutely, person. and we find this in later Christian texts too, right? So one example would be I think of the Acts of Andrew, uh, where there's uh, this Christian woman who basically, uh, by becoming Christian, she renounces sexuality. But she's married, and so what she does is say, tell her slave that you have to have sex with my husband now, and basically forces her slave to have sex with her husband. And this is depicted as a good and clever thing for this woman to do, right? Which is, again, horrific based on our values today, but yet the the sexual availability of slaves was a very common conception throughout antiquity, right? You know, this is presumed uh, throughout most writings that mention slaves in antiquity, right? Petronius' Satyricon, you know, Josephus. Take your pick. Um, this is presumed as a matter of course. And yet we tend to assume that that's not the case with the Gospels, right? That we tend to assume that uh, yeah, there's yeah. S- yeah, nice, nice things. This <laughs> confirms with our own sort of views of, of what uh, sexual mm. appropriateness is in a way that you know, may not always be the case. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, some, something you mentioned earlier, and I just, I just want to see if there's more to it. You said that there's this word entimos, if I'm pronouncing that right. There's a Greek word, sort of an adjective that the centurion uses to describe his slave. Does that color our reading of this to maybe, maybe it was a little, uh, a a more loving relationship than we're talking about between a a master and slave? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, the Greek we hear is entimos. This is used only in the gospel of Luke in uh, chapter seven, verse two. Um, and uh, what you'll find, for instance, if you open up most English translations of the Bible is the word dear, very dear, something like that. Um, the word comes basically combines two Greek words, en and timos, basically meaning someone who has been imbued with honor and an honorable person, an important, distinguished person. Um, mm. And so, uh, for instance, Luke uses the word or a variation of the word one other time um, in uh, chapter 14, verse 8, um, to talk about uh, kind of people giving up your seat for the more honored, the more distinguished person and stuff like that. Um, and when we look at kind of how this word is used and kind of applied to other people, what's striking is there's only one instance where it's actually applied to a slave in any ancient text. And there you need something wildly different. It actually has to do with like the specific laws and citizenship rights of a particular uh, Greek uh, city. What we tend to find is that it's not uncommon on, for instance, tombstones, um, for uh, kind of people who thought of themselves as distinguished or who their uh, loved ones thought of as distinguished, right? So here's Rabbi so-and-so, the distinguished. Here's uh, this great um, military man who's honored in this or that way. So the word entimos usually means something like um, honored, important, distinguished, respected, something along those lines. 
And when we look at the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it tends to mean something along those lines too. Um, so uh, the uh, second Esdras, the, the Septuagint version of Nehemiah, commonly uses this word to refer to people of high status, aristocrats, elites, something like that, the ha entimas, the elites. Um, and so I actually think it kind of weighs a little bit against the reading um, because mm. in this sort of Roman context, um, slaves were devoid of honor um, with very few exceptions, right? That kind of that thing which defines slavery is that you could not achieve honor and any honor that would have been ascribed to you, in fact, goes to your um, slave owner instead. Um, and when you are shameful, it's just sort of matter of course, it's expected that that's the case. Um, and so the fact that this applied to a slave would suggest to me that this may be a, an important slave within the centurion's household, right? So someone who may have been running some of the affairs, um, you know, the oikonomos would might be kind of one status that would have been applied to them, um, who might be in charge of taking care of things with a centurion's gone, a particularly trusted slave um, of, of some distinction within the household as opposed to, um, you know, a young man uh, who is, uh, you know, the beloved, the, uh, the lover of uh, this particular centurion. So I actually think mm-hmm. it weighs a little bit against it. Um, but, you know, that's my own interpretation with it. I, I've tried to do some comparative work with how it's used in other contexts. But you do find it, a number of people who are advocating the queer reading, really tying into that word. But again, I, I don't think we actually find any evidence of it, meaning that sort of emotional intimacy, dearness, um, beloved, mm-hmm. anything like that. I, I couldn't find really any evidence of that when I was looking into it. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get to our most important question. We have a functioning, well, almost functioning time machine. There are some glitches. <laughs> I don't want to tell you we've had some really scary um, <laughs> mistakes, but for the most part, people get to where they want to go. There's that, well... There's Don't a, there's tell a, there's him a, that. I know there's a criminal case pending. No, I can't <laughs> talk about it. It got ugly. I hope I hope he gets back. Um, but if if you if you if you could get inside this semi-functioning time machine, where and when would you like to travel, Chris? Uh, I'm excited by this question. I think about this all the time. Um, oh, nice. I meet up for friends at the pub. You know, if you could go back to any time, what would it be? Um, yeah, yeah. And it changed for me on occasion. I think, uh, given the content of this uh, particular one, I, I think for me, I would really be interested. One, one figure, one group of people I've been thinking about a lot lately in my research is uh, Spartacus and the Third Servile War, right? So here's a, a yeah. slave revolt um, in the 70s uh, before the Common Era. And I think one thing that I'm actually struck by in my research about it is not the war itself, right? I'm more or less a pacifist myself. I have no interest in in becoming part of any of that sort of violence or anything. But I think one thing that really strikes me in looking at what ancient historians say is sort of the community that emerged, the sort of community of enslaved people that kind of formed their own society and what that looked like. Um, Hmm. uh, So they talk about things like uh, basically a slave-run society where there's no money, uh, things like that. Well, what Hmm. what did this sort of thing look like? So for me... If I could take anywhere back in time, again, assuming I've got my immunization record and everything up like that, so I'm not <laughs> going to get infected back in antiquity. Uh, this would be their, their communities in Thurii in Italy, um, 73 to 71 BCE. I think 
you know, just being able to watch that for a while, seeing how they did things, I think would be fascinating. I think I'd learn a lot. I think I'd be pretty excited with that. So that would be my choice. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Very specific. It makes it a lot easier when we can type in a very specific place and time. Into the time machine. It does work better. So awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, his book again is called Queer Readings of the Centurion at Capernaum, Their History and Politics. And that is from our friends at SBL Press came out in 2022. And I wanted to thank our listener and time travelers club member Pauline Goodlad one more time for her suggestion for this topic. And yeah, thanks to all of our listeners. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Chris. And we'll see all of you guys next time on Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye. And just a little note to listeners that if you want to be in the running to win one of these amazingly useful SBL study Bibles, you'll need to join the Time Travelers Club. So you can find out all about it on our website. <laughs>